it was 100% working on me. I was super invested. I was super Mormon. I really believed it. I really believed it. I was out there every day trying to save people because I felt I was the only person in Italy that had the truth. Like all these good people need to know the truth that I have. And yet at the same time, I was seeing things that were bothering me. The ex-Mormons talk, did the, I don't know if the, the guest you had on before talked about the shelf. Did she ever mention this no, phrase? No. Okay. Ex-Mormons love this phrase. I think it's beautiful. I like it a lot. Your shelf is where you place all the things that don't make sense about your religion. All the doubts that you have, all the things that don't like. Like, this doesn't Aaron, seem Christ-like. They have a term for it. They have... You, yeah, like any, like I think you you just compartmentalize in order right. to exist. You compartmentalize, and so the compartment that we put all our doubts, we call it a shelf, and we call it this because eventually you put so many things on it that it can't support the weight of all those, and your shelf breaks. And every ex-Mormon has a story about when, like, what was it that broke your shelf? Yeah. Like I could ask that to any ex-Mormon, and they they have they usually have an answer. Like it was this. Hey everybody, this is Tom Goss from Leaving the Tribe. Um, today's guest, Aaron Woodall, talking about his experience leaving Mormonism. Uh, you can follow him on uh, social media at Aaron Woodall14. Yeah, at Aaron Woodall14. Um, yeah, we talk about Mormonism and his process of leaving. Uh, it, it's, it's a really good episode. We also, uh, also, if you haven't already, check out his podcast. Uh, Mormon and the Meth Head, which he does with former guest of the show, Jessa Reed. Um, you can also follow me, uh, Tom Goss, at GossGoss6, and you can follow the podcast at Leaving Tribe Pod. Um, I'm very excited uh, to, to keep doing the show, just in case there's any conjecture out there. My other show is uh, is ending. I know not everyone listens to both shows, uh, this show will absolutely continue to go on, and uh, I'll be able to do it more regularly now, which I'm very excited about. Um, and I have more exciting announcements coming up about that. Uh, but for right now, uh, enjoy this episode of Leaving the Tribe with Aaron Woodall. Oh, also, okay, sorry, I always do this. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Um... The subscriptions help, the ratings help, and a review really helps. The reviews have been stagnant lately. It makes it this show look more official. It makes this show look more appealing to comedians who don't really know who I am that I want to get on. Um, so please do that. Aaron, this is how cool Aaron is. He didn't even look at how many reviews I have, you know. But that's just because he's a he's a cool guy. Uh, I don't know why I'm trying to be cutesy about this. Uh, probably because I forgot it, to say it earlier, but yeah, follow follow Aaron Woodall, follow Leaving the Tribe, follow me, rate, review, and subscribe, and please enjoy this terrific episode with uh, Aaron Woodall. Dream psychosis, so it's probably it's probably a bad idea to uh, uh, mess with uh, mess with that but if there's one drug I want to risk it on it's DMT there's just too many uh, too, there's too much interesting just backstory and like what happens you but you so you have you done you've done regular DMT too 
I done regular DMT once, but I didn't even blast off. I did a, like a little baby dose. I got to this point where they're like, you're going to feel like you're done and then you need to take another hit uh-huh. and that's how you blast off. And I got to that point and I was like, I recognize that I'm not going to blast off and I'm okay with it. I yeah. just, I think I'll just stop here. And I just, nothing really cool. I watched my arms kind of morph and change and then I uh, had like a really long hot like i just felt like i was on very strong weed for a long time like okay. uh I, but i didn't get to go see like a n- different dimension you didn't with meet god or anything yeah, yeah so but i was like i was i like i start things out with a baby dose every time gotcha uh, that's how i play it safe for right. it so i see if i like it see how my body reacts to it then i'll the next time i'm like okay it's i don't know less scary yeah i mean that's the that's the way to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's always it's always uh people who always go let's go full board the first time uh i just have I, I can't do it i know it's the smarter way to go but i do have fewer stories to tell you know right like, right uh i've done all these drugs and was like what happened i'm like i had a good time yeah <laughs> yeah it was fun well, that's what drugs are for right yeah everybody has so many bad times on drugs everybody has a story about how they did mushrooms and it went really uh went bad yeah and oh, uh i don't want one of those stories no i don't either i'm, I'm terrified of i mean uh, i've pretty much touched i wouldn't say everything i've touched a lot of shit but i've never touched hallucinogens uh-huh and it's just because i have a history of psychosis and that was the one the doctor was like do not under any circumstances they said, we- but then I get iffy because they also said weed would do the same thing. But do you smoke weed? Not regularly, but I've I, on occasion I will. For a period, it was the only thing that gave me to fall asleep yeah. and stuff. And you know, it was it was fine. I had some bad trips when uh uh when I smoke it. Weirdly, edibles are easier for me than smoking it. No, well, that makes more sense to me. The when yeah. I, uh, edibles for me always um, make my body feel more high than my head. And when I smoke is when I feel paranoid. Uh, yeah, paranoid yeah. or I don't know. There's more of like a a head high like where my where on edibles my thoughts feel pretty um yeah. Pretty consistent with how I feel regularly, but my right. body is just buzzy. Yeah. But uh, when I smoke is when I'm, I have all those dumb thoughts like, oh, what if? <laughs> right. <laughs> no. Yeah. When, when did you when did you because you were OK, you were raised Mormon, raised as Mormon as they come. Yeah. So you got into Mormon. all that stuff um, late or were you? Yeah. Like Mormon? this is like six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of catching up to do. I did it real fast. Uh, no, I so. I quit. I left Mormonism. I said I'm done. I don't believe in it anymore. In November of 2015. Uh huh. But I still then followed all the rules, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, for like almost another year before I started experimenting with alcohol and R-rated movies, and, and then that began my descent. You know. Right. Right. So like, I mean. First off, we—I mean, we, uh, we've had one other uh, uh, guest who was a Mormon here, but I mean, I—I I, which I, really I, pisses me off. <laughs> it's really <laughs> upsetting. Well, I thought this was my corner of the market. I have this. I own this. I, I mean, in the in the comedy world, you do. She wasn't a comedian. She's an artist, and she, you know, uh, and her episode was great. But I mean, part of the show. What's interesting for me for the show is even if it's the same religion, you get very different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from your perspective, I also I grew up around a lot of Mormons uh, uh, in South Orange County. I was raised Buddhist, but I, I was 
semi-familiar, but, uh, you know, uh, what it, based off, like, perspective and how people perceived you and what actually was your experience in the church, what is the difference? What are the stereotypes and what are the reality that would, mm. like, happen a lot? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm too familiar with what uh, the stereotypes, with what the other people think of us, uh, uh-huh. because... I don't. It is an interesting religion in that it's pretty. It's 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 verging on cult status. Uh-huh. Um, how, I, how so? I think it has cult-ish behaviors and cult-ish, uh, you know, aspects. Right. But that's the things that the things that I think of are the, are the way that we other the anyone who's not in the church. Uh, you'll you talk you call them non-members. You call the Mormon Church the church. It's just the church, and every everyone is either a Mormon or a non-member. Like we we talk to each other as like like oh my my non-member friend. Oh yeah. this is a non-member. Like you just label everyone else as like it's us and it's them. Right. And we're a very small church. We're not that uh, big, and uh, especially not in a, in America compared to other religions, and. Uh, I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of people to just all label as non us, you know, and that's where I feel like we're getting closer to cult like things. Right. Mm -hmm. And you really are. We're very obsessed with not being of the world. Have you heard that phrase before from other Christians? I I haven't. Or you you want to be in the world, but not of the world. Like Uh we're forced to live here in this world, but we want to be a part. We want to be peculiar. We want to be different because if we were like the rest of you guys, uh, that would suck. We would just be sinners like you guys. Right? So, uh, the way that we distinguish ourselves and we put these barriers between us and everybody else, um, and then Mormonism is very different depending on if you grow up in Utah versus not. And I've Did lived, grow- I grew up in Maryland, which is okay. why I stayed so cool for so long. Gotcha. Because in Utah, which is where I live now and have lived for, I think, nine years now, it's way different. And you, there isn't. There's no other you you only have contact with Mormons and you live in your little Mormon bubble and you uh I don't know. You don't have a great understanding of how the rest of the country thinks, acts, and lives. Uh-huh. You just have like our version of it, which we think like everyone's super just drunk all the time. <laughs> like right. I feel like I I felt so you know you, you you we talk about people that are not members when you find like a good one as if like they're they must be the only like righteous non-mormon person like oh yeah he's a non-member but he's a good guy you know like the same way that like your grandparents would talk about your black friend kyle as being like you know he's pretty well spoken for like because they because they have this bad assumption on everyone and all this to say is i don't really understand what other people's perspective of mormons are no that's that's fair if you if what i just sound what i just described sounds like what you thought well then you you nailed it you've got a very good perception of us i think we are nice we're 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 kind there's a lot of good qualities about mormons uh but we are sheltered we are naive uh but like 
I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of Christian faiths that I feel um, like would be similar. We have I have this podcast yeah. with Jessa Reed called Mormon and the Meth Head. Yeah, great and a, show. Yeah, thank you. There's a lot of people that listen that weren't Mormon but were raised in a different Christian faith, and they say there's a lot of similarities. You know, right? Like uh, I don't know. I think that they're they're we're not too unique. I think that you would probably find similarities between us and uh, yeah. Any yeah. other like like super hardcore Christians? Right, you know? right. It's interesting. I mean, you kept bringing it up there. Like, basically, uh, if you weren't Mormon, there was a lot of kind of looking down on anyone who wasn't a part of the church. Yeah, it's subtle though. Like, I don't even think we're aware that we're looking down on you. You know, interesting. I don't. Interesting. I. Yeah. It's. It's. Um. It's a lot more like self right. It's a subtle bit of self righteousness, you know. Like we right. have the truth, and you guys don't. We kind of pity you guys more wow. than look down, like more than like scorn at yeah, you. Yeah, no, that makes we a lot just, of sense. We have compassion for the uh, the these poor souls who right. are living such uh, sad lives because they don't have the fullness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh huh. How old were you when you actually noticed that was like a th- a thing that was in the church? Because I assume, and I could be wrong, if you're being raised with it, you just kind of view that mm-hmm. as normal. Well, I grew up in Maryland where yeah. I went to school where I was like the only Mormon. Uh-huh. And uh, it was, you know, everyone knew me as the Mormon kid and they knew I had these standards and like, you know, I, I had very strict parents and I was a good kid and, but I had, I had lots of different kinds of friends. I, f- I felt like I started noticing things when I served my mission. Uh-huh. I was 20 years old and I went to, for two years to Italy to serve as a representative oh, wow. of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's a pretty good cool pull, uh, pull to get I know to get man Italy. <laughs> some people go to Oklahoma no, yeah. fuck that or man. like some people go to third world countries where it's just at straight least up dangerous that is right? dangerous at least that's an adventure yeah, if I got true. if I got sent to to Florida I would just yeah. be like I'm I'm just gonna leave I'm not gonna do yeah, this no uh, thanks I don't love the church more than I hate Fort Lauderdale yeah <laughs> No, I got a very lucky break because uh, you don't get a pick. They just right. like pull places out of a hat or throw darts at a board. I don't know. Uh, and they send you off. But before you go to Italy, you got to go to the Missionary Training Center. And that's in Provo, Utah. This uh-huh. is the one I went to was. And you get to learn the language. You learn how to be a missionary. But they put you in to in tight spaces with all the other missionaries, right? Yeah. And everyone else is from Utah or Idaho or, like, some other, like, big Mormon place. It's my first time, like, hanging out with Utah Mormons. Right. And I remember realizing, like, I'm the most progressive person here. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I remember a guy... I, I, I almost fought this guy. I just yelled at him a bunch in the missionary training center. You know, we're in our white shirts and ties. Yeah. He... We got into a fight over Bob Marley because he was like, Bob Marley smokes weed, so he's in hell. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever yeah. heard. And he would like he was just so he like I asked him questions about like I was like, You realize that most of the people you're gonna go teach and try to baptize have probably smoked weed. And he was just like, No, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, because I all my friends smoked weed. Right. And I don't think these guys ever had friends that smoked weed. So it seemed so 
demonic. Right. And, then, and to me, I was like, I mean, I'm never going to do it. Ha ha ha. But I was <laughs> never, I'm, I would never ever do it. But like, I knew that good, kind people can smoke weed and it's okay. Right. And that was like such a huge, was so far advanced beyond your typical Utah Mormon that I met. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like moving, and then I, I after my mission, I, I went, I moved to Utah. I went to Brigham Young University, also in right. Provo, and oof, that's really it was rough being there. I feel like I might not have left the church if I hadn't gone there. So I'm glad that I went there. Uh-huh. But you see a lot of ugliness up close. Like all the Mormons that I knew in Maryland were just chill and were yeah. fine and were, cool. Were there other like kids your age in the Mormon church when you were lived in Maryland? There or? were, but none of them went to my school. So gotcha. uh, like I went to a, like we in Utah, like you're like so Mormon church is separated into wards. Like uh-huh. that's the that's the low base level thing, right? Yeah. Everybody, that's where you go to church on Sundays with your ward. And in Utah, it's like there's a ward for every block. But in Maryland, you know, you only have a few wards to cover up the whole state. And so you get kids from different schools. So there were kids other ages, or I mean, sorry, other kids the same age as me. But you only saw them at church. I only saw them at church. And they didn't really like me very much because I was such a good Mormon. I felt like everyone else was kind of like experimenting with alcohol or getting a girlfriend. And uh, I was there like with my scriptures out on Sunday, like ready to answer questions like, hey, guys, can we invite the spirit here today? I'm ready to get my Sabbath on. And no one was really feeling that vibe. That's that's so interesting that in your hometown. You were too radical for the other kids, uh-huh. and then you go to the radical place. You were way too progressive, uh-huh. and y- yeah, that's- I went, That's like also just how I felt in life. It wasn't until I started doing stand-up comedy at Brigham Young, and there I was like the badass. I was the baddest ass at Brigham Young University. I watched The Walking Dead. People couldn't be like believe you know the amount like people whew, they were scared of me. I was such a badass. And so I had this mental this kind of like Fonzie image of myself right. like I got or not uh, like I've got like a leather jacket and thumbs up, you know, I'm like I feel very cool. But as I Did you actually get a leather jacket? No, I just no. in my mind I felt that's like that's how yourself. cool I was and then i like every i would go to comedy festivals which is where i met jessa reed the meth head yeah uh and everyone there is like oh nice cardigan that you're wearing you little boy yeah and i'm like hey (laughs) i'm a man and they're like just tousling my hair like oh what a cute little kid (laughs) right right i'm like yeah (laughs) be afraid of me (laughs) and so i it's not until i really left mormonism that i found out how mormon i really was yeah and uh like just the way i I don't know. Viewed the world and stuff. I was very naive and innocent. When when you went when you went to BYU, were there any? Other, I mean, were there any other kids who had that reputation? Or were you very much an island? Oh there? no, there's a whole underground to BYU that's very cool. Uh-huh. There, so most of BYU is is just a is a terrible hellscape. Uh, but if you are in one of the more liberal majors, uh-huh. you'll find kids that are similar to you. You right. know, uh, and. There are lots of kids at BYU. Now, when you go to BYU, you sign an honor code agreement that says you'll never drink, you'll never smoke, you'll be honest, you'll never have sex, you won't look at porn, you won't masturbate, you'll you'll sure. obey all these rules. 
and they'll kick you out if you, they think that right. you've. There's a whole snitch culture at BYU that they really encourage. There's people should check out on Instagram. Uh, Honor Code Stories is the name of the Instagram. Uh-huh. If you're interested in this, it started last school year. Somebody started collecting people's stories with how they were getting uh, kicked out of school because of the honor code and uh, they're terrifying and sad and like really important stories to look at. Are they, are they from the perspective of the people who got snitched? Yeah, they're all, they're all, there's a couple of different, most of the stories that are shared there are firsthand anonymous accounts of people who got in trouble with the honor code office. Occasionally there's like a parent of a person who got in trouble, who's like sharing the story or also sometimes like, a third party, someone who was called in to witness wrote their account or someone who was right. like pressured into snitching wrote their account. Right. Uh, but most of them are from like uh, and it's all anonymous, but most of them are from the people that were that were like the the subject of the investigation. Gotcha. Because there's this whole office dedicated to uh, investigating infractions of the honor code. And they're like kind of like SS tactics. And they will really they'll they, they just they'll fuck up your whole life. Right. When you say when you say SS tactics, like could you give an example of something that kind of felt that fascist? Just like they're they have they when I was there, yeah, there was a list of like students who were what did they call it? It wasn't a blacklist. But they were had their eye on these students. Like, we need to keep our eye on them. Right. It's every single student, essentially, there was a few other people that were, like, feminists that were on the list. But mostly the list is anyone who's suspected of being gay. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. And uh, they... I guess blacklist is better than the gay list. I, I guess mean, so. Like... Uh, but that's, it wasn't, you know, exclusively for gay students, but that was the highest. That was, that's what, that's the, yeah, the most of that list was that, and they're keeping their eye on you and they're, uh, encouraging students. Like when you come to freshman orientation, you really get encouraged to rat on your students or on on your classmates. I mean, like anybody, because it's all about, it's all about the spirit. You know, and if you and helping your your fellow man, like if you see your roommate struggling, uh, like Satan has been tempting him to fool around with his girlfriend after hours uh, in, you know, in the dorm room, you need to tell somebody. And so like roommates will just snitch on each other and be like, uh, and there's like any sort of infraction, right? Like, oh, just like the uh, one story that I read on there was like uh, my boyfriend walked into my bedroom and that's not allowed. You can only stay in the main room opposite sex. Like you can come to the living room and the kitchen. Yeah. But like you can't go back to the bathroom even. Right. But like he walked into my bedroom to grab boxes with me because he was helping me move. Like we're moving out. Like we're just walking into my apartment, grabbing boxes and walking out. My roommates who didn't like me then told the honor code that I was having sex with my boyfriend. So that's just an accusation. There's no proof. There's nothing. Yeah. But that honor code brings you in to an office and they're like, you know what you did. And you're like, what? Tell me what. What did I do? And they're like, don't. Come on. You know what you did. You know what you did. Why don't you just tell us everything you did? And they really and they they tell, you, you know, like, well, here's how it's going to go badly for you. Like we're just going to you can either tell us what you did and repent of it or we'll just kick you out. You know, and you're like, what? Well, what is it? What is? It? And they just want 
to see if they get you to say anything. Right. They want you to, to confess to something else, you know? And then they always ask for, like, especially with uh, homosexual students, say somebody, let's say somebody um, not even has sex. Let's say they make out with someone of the same sex. Then they feel really guilty about it because our religion's got a lot of shame about it, you know? Then is, is even can you ki- but for I, I don't know the rules. Are you allowed to kiss? Before no, Mar- no, you no, can't no, kiss. you can't. No, no, if you're gay, you can't. OK, if, if you if yeah. you you cannot. They say that they they said homosexuality. They've reclassified. It. It's no longer a sin to be homosexual. Uh-huh. Uh, although I don't think they call it that. I think they call it same sex attraction. You struggle with same sex attraction like right. it's a like it's a trial or a temptation for them. And you cannot act on it at all so you can't hold hands you can't date can't have a boyfriend you can't kiss nothing for a heterosexual couple at byu you could kiss mm-hmm. but like you couldn't you you just can't touch each other's genitals or anything like right. that you can't do any under the clothes stuff right or over the clothes stuff really technically but anyway just i'm just saying like a gay student wouldn't even have to have sex to get kicked out that just kissing might ki- get them kicked out yeah but you feel terrible. You feel you're racked with guilt and you're like, what have I done? I'm so bad. So I go to con- you go to your uh, spiritual advisor, the bishop mm-hmm. and confess. And then that's not good enough. You also have to talk to the honor code office because you broke the honor code. It's this whole separate thing. Right. And they'll listen to you and let you and give you some like essay to write to prove how sorry you are or whatever. But they want to know who you kissed. And they want to know who else you know who is also struggling with this trial so they can help them. It's very oh, insidious. Wow. Yeah, and because, you, yeah. And there's stories on that Instagram account of the people that refused to roll over and then they got kicked out. And it was just like, all I had to do was write an essay, but then when I wouldn't give the names that they wanted, then suddenly uh, I wasn't repentant enough to stay at the university. So now I'm out. You yeah. Know? I mean that's 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 horrifying. I mean, because one, if you're if you're gay or you've smoked a joint or wh- whatever whatever horrible uh-huh. unforgivable thing, you know, it's also if you have those whatever urges they may be, you I'm guessing there's very few places you can find any sort of camaraderie. Because I'm guessing most of the people don't deal with those things there. Well, here's the thing. This was the the whole reason I got onto this was like yeah. I never. I never associate associated with any of these snitch bitches. I don't know who like that was not my experience. I somehow found all the cool kids. And I think yeah. that like we gravitate towards each other. Uh-huh. You know, like I was I started stand up at BYU. We had a club there for people interested in stand up. And I don't think you'd be surprised to know that even at the Mormon University that that attracts the people who are, you know, a little yeah. bit uh, different. Yeah, they're a little <laughs> bit more of like the. Not antisocial, but like they're rebels. Yeah, you know we we uh, we would we would cuss in each other's presence. You know right. we felt safe enough to do that, right? But like in the film program, in like the uh, social sciences, which is where I was, I was in sociology and stuff. You find more open-minded people, yeah. and you just gravitate towards them, and then you realize that there's like a whole underground at BYU of kids that are drinking that are smoking weed and they just have a code of silence and they all respect each other. Right. But you have to be very careful because you don't do it. 
You don't reveal those things about yourself to just anybody. I can't imagine what it's like to be gay on that campus and have to worry about, like, who can I tell this secret to? Right. But, like, for me, I just needed, you know, to to find people that were, that were okay with me saying fuck. Like, that was the yeah. worst thing that I was that I was doing at the time. And, but, like, so I didn't do, I didn't drink or anything at BYU. Uh, and it was really... Only afterward, after I came out, like, and this is after I graduated, uh-huh. that all of my friends, like the friends that I had, were all like, oh, yeah, we were drinking and stuff. And then I was like, ah, I wish I had done that now. Like, I wish I'd been part of, like, the cool underground kids. Yeah. I was friends with them, but uh, I just wasn't partaking. You know? I mean, that's so interesting. You said you, you found the group of people you knew you could say fuck in front of. And within that same group, they liked you. They knew you were their friends with you, but they also went, we know he's not going to drink. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's so interesting that that instinct is, is, was so ingrained in all you guys. Because I imagine there's a lot of living in fear no matter what you're doing there. I think so. I had it. I think I had it easier because I was married, and a lot of BYU students are. You get uh-huh. married freshman year, and then you're out of the dorms. You're out of roommates. You just have this one roommate, and you get to have sex with them. So, like, uh, you give a. It's a. It's a lot less stressful, I right, think. Right. But if you are single and you have roommates the whole time you're in college, then yeah, I think you're watching your back a lot more. I think you're very conscious of the things, the things that you share with everyone. Yeah. Did you get married freshman year? I got married. Yeah, I got married halfway through my first semester. Uh-huh. I uh yeah. Mormons get married super fast, super young. I met this girl uh in the summer and the summer like she had just finished her freshman year. I had just come home from my mission. Uh-huh. And I was going to start BYU in the fall. And we met in the summer at a singles ward, which is a ward just to to get people married it's like if you as soon as you turn 18 you get to go to the ward that's just for unmarried uh horny young people and you just pair off so quick you want to know something that may or may not blow your mind here okay i've been to several of them (laughs) really (laughs) like your friends invited you yeah yeah nice i swear (laughs) nice weren't they were the girls hot some of them yeah uh i think i think mormon girls are are Mormon girls are ridiculously hot. Mormon guys are somehow the ugliest. <laughs> it's so weird. You see, it's like one of my favorite things is to look at Utah couples and you have this smoking hot, this smoking hot wife, just so hot, very well dressed, well put together. And then there's this dude who's just like fat and is somehow wearing clothes for someone who's fatter than him. Like he doesn't, no one's ever taught him how to dress well. He's bald already. He's only 33. He's bald. And uh, there's that couple repeated all over the place in Mormonism. It's very, it makes me laugh. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I don't know as many uh, uh, Mormon, you know, married people as I, you know, because this is out of high school and stuff uh-huh. that I went to uh, went to a couple. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, most of the girls are, were very attractive. Uh, I uh, anyway, the men I didn't really, I wasn't really paying attention <laughs> to, if I'm being honest. But yeah, the girls there. Well, and I, I always wonder, like, I'm like, how do they, in general, I feel like, I've actually had this theory that they intentionally, the, and this is probably not true, 
But I've, I I was like, do Mormons recruit intentionally, like, classically attractive people to try to lure in non, non-Mormons? non Like, I, I've had that well, here. Oh, okay. Well. All right, so I wasn't expecting that well. I'm very... If you... I, I, I think there's there's a lot of different uh, aspects of what you're saying to, to talk about, but like I mean like we we I don't know if we recruit attractive people. I think right. we breeding them. Like we just like we raise we raise them we raise them up. They like there's something different about BYU as a campus. Like people just dress better than you will see at other campuses because right. we part of the honor code is a dress code. But there is an emphasis on looking good in Mormonism. Yeah. Like that's kind of instilled in you. So you you do we do look good i don't know we also don't drink and don't smoke our skin is is much better our eyes look much clearer the only it's only group of white people with good skin i will admit yeah uh so i think the just those things but like as far as trying to recruit people into the church you know i said that like they just pick your missions at random yeah if you are an attractive girl that's going on a mission you it's not exactly random anymore. Like, okay, we there is one mission on Earth. Like missions are when I say mission, I mean like a geographical area, right? Because that's what you get assigned to. Like I was assigned to the Italy Milan mission, which covered from like the southern Italian tip of Switzerland all the way down to almost Rome. Like this is a yeah. big area. That was my whole mission. There's one mission in the world uh, that's all female missionaries. And it's only a couple square blocks. And it's the Salt Lake City Visitor Center mission. And this is like the biggest tourist attraction that Mormons have. People come uh, to Utah, come to Salt Lake City. They go to Temple Square. Yeah. It's where we got our big our big old temple and we got some monuments. And there's like a... I mean, I take my friends there. They come to visit. You got to go see Temple Square. Right. It's cool. But the missionaries that work there are like giving tours all day long to people and uh, you know then they're like what, like do you want to know more we can send missionaries to your house wherever it is you live give us your information we'll send missionaries there right all those missionaries are women there are no elders at, in that mission and they're all hot they're all hot if you are a hot girl that's putting in paperwork, you might get called. Like you're probably gonna get called to uh, the Salt Lake uh, Temple Square mission. Yeah. It's very interesting, and it's like pretty obvious why they're doing it. Right. You right. know. Yeah. Like anybody can give a tour. Like anybody could walk around and be like, "And this building was made." <laughs> right. But they they only pick the hot girls. Uh, that's like what we call well, welcome to the big show. Like you, you're not, you know, a, right. anybody could serve a mission, but like you got to be cream of the crop to come to Temple Square. Yeah, I mean, it's also that's where if you're visiting there, you're probably more likely to join than maybe anywhere else. I'd I don't know. I would no. love to know what the numbers are. Yeah. Like I feel like Mormons are really good at recruiting. Um, sad people with nothing going for them you know i feel like we do really good uh in poverty stricken areas uh the people that i saw converted were always people that like didn't have friends didn't have family didn't have money and uh you know you can see like these are people that are yearning for a sense of belonging and community and i think that a lot of religions and yeah and i think that that makes us very attractive i think though if you're just like visiting you're just on a on vacation with your family i wonder like like i don't know 
I think that more than than recruiting, they care about public image and that this yeah. is where we're being seen by the public. Even if we aren't converting these people, we want them to have a good opinion of us. Right. We want them to say, those Mormons are really nice. And you think nice thoughts about attractive people. You know, it's not, true. It's not yeah. rocket science. No, it's very true. It's very true. Mm. And you said it was your mission where you started to kind of have some uh, some doubts about the church. Well, yeah, and it's 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 interesting because it's also the time that I was most invested in the church. I think that mi- a mission's a very big ritual in Mormonism. Right. That's something my whole life I knew I was going to do because they told me my whole life like you're just building up until you turn 19. Now it's 18. You can go on a mission and it's such a huge it's a huge thing um and the we talk about how we're going to go, you know, preach the gospel unto the whole world and and save souls and bring souls unto Christ. But realistically, if you I bet we would be disappointed in what the actual numbers are. I think more cynically that a mission is about getting the member like the missionary, getting him invested in it for life. Because uh-huh. when you give two years of your life to it, right, and you're just like in every you're cut off, you don't get to watch TV or listen to radio or talk to your friends back home. All you do all day is study Mormonism, yeah. and, you, and then talk to other people about it. You get invested in it, then they tell you to go home and get married and have kids as fast as you can. And I think that like most of us, you know, went on missions, came home, got married, had kids by before we were 26, which is when our brains are fully formed. So right. by the time that you are really capable of having critical thought and wondering, is this a mistake? You're already in it. You're deep in it. You've got kids already that you're raising Mormon and it's harder to just like give it all up. And so if you if you subscribe to that, if you think that that's what a mission is truly about, it was 100% working on me. I was super invested. I was super Mormon. I really believed it. I really believed it. I was out there every day trying to save people because I felt I was the only person in Italy that had the truth. Like all these good people need to know the truth that I have. And yet at the same time, I was seeing things that were bothering me. The ex-Mormons talk, did the, I don't know if the, the guest you had on before talked about the shelf. Did she ever mention this no, phrase? No. Okay. Ex-Mormons love this phrase. I think it's beautiful. I like it a lot. Your shelf is where you place all the things that don't make sense about your religion. All the doubts that you have, all the things that don't like. Like, this doesn't Inter- seem Christ-like. They have a term for it. They have... You, yeah, like any, like I think you you just compartmentalize in order right. to exist. You compartmentalize, and so the compartment that we put all our doubts, we call it a shelf, and we call it this because eventually you put so many things on it that it can't support the weight of all those, and your shelf breaks. And every ex Mormon has a story about when, like, what was it that broke your shelf? Yeah. Like I could ask that to any ex Mormon, and they they have they usually have an answer. Like it was this. So like I have. For me, it took years. Right. But the first thing I placed on my shelf was as a missionary in 2008. The Mormon church uh, started getting involved in California politics. Do you remember this, Tom? No. In 2008, I was I was like 15. Okay. Um, well, this I'm, is this yeah. is Prop 8. That was based. On, that was Mormonism. 
Yeah, well, they like I don't know who sub, who like started Prop right. Eight. It wasn't us, but Mormons got involved. Yeah, the prophet said, God said that this was ve- that this vote's very important. That the future of our nation hinges on it, yeah. and everyone needs to vote. Right. Uh, I don't know if it was for it or against it. Whatever it was that was going to stop same-sex marriage. The church was telling people how to vote. It was yeah, because they're they're non-California listeners here. Prop eight, uh, if you, if you if you don't know what that it was, it was a I think it was the California was going to legalize gay marriage, I believe, before the rest of the uh, yeah it was going to yeah. legalize gay marriage, and it became a huge 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 thing. Mm-hmm. In California, I remember. I still see occasional bumper stickers. Yeah, I still see on both sides because there was it was a very big issue, and a lot of money went into uh, things like bumper stickers and signs yeah. and, and and TV commercials. And the Mormon Church was donating money, was spending lots of money to affect the outcome of a state's election, and that to me felt really wrong. And I didn't understand how how my church, God's church, the true church, was doing something like that. I was like, that doesn't seem right. And they're like, well, you know, it's just this is like, you know, marriage is very important to God. And I was like, I get that. But we've never told people how to vote before. Right. I had friends at BYU who were being encouraged to volunteer after class in call centers and then they were calling voters in California and then, you know, giving them propaganda. Yeah. And I was like, that feels shady. But my mind wasn't ready to process that yet. I couldn't understand how my church could do something. Like, how could my church be true and also do this? Right. And so I put it on my shelf. I was yeah. like, hey, you know what? I'm actually pretty grateful that I'm in Italy right now and I don't have to be confronted with this problem Yeah, because I would hate to be like to have to go against the prophet. That's right. very big in Mormonism. You follow the prophet. What the prophet says goes. And I was like, this doesn't seem right. But luckily for me, I don't have to vote, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was too young, but I, you know, it was still when we had you had landlines yeah, I received like I picked up the phone. Did you during, get called by a BYU oh, student? I, I don't know if it was a BYU student, but I got I, there were so many calls. It was a constant thing. Mm. It was in a weird way. Besides, like the presidency was a huge introduction introduction to politics for me. I was raised in California. It was a constant thing from both sides that divided and I had no idea the Mormon Church had anything to do. That's why I'm, I'm it's weird. Yeah, well, they had um they had kids out on on streets holding up signs like they would have yeah. uh, oh, they yeah. would organize youth activities uh-huh. like a more like so Wednesday nights we have mutual like young men and young women do stuff uh-huh. and on um, so they would have activities like well instead of like I don't know sewing this week or whatever we were gonna do play basketball Go we're gonna we marriage. are making signs to protest gay marriage yeah you know what's so okay sorry I'm, I'm just go processing. for it yeah uh, but there, there's a intersection. It's a major intersection where half of ones of the intersection would be pro, and half the other intersection would be anti. And there were a lot of young kids. And less than a half mile away is the Church of Latter Day Saints down the street. Yeah, it's probably I them, man. Just, yeah, and like, sorry, so there's so many memories. Uh huh. I knew you were gonna remember it. I knew. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was. I mean, I didn't realize it was. I mean, I don't know 
how much of this was because you were in the church that you know about it because that seems to be like it was a very big thing for your mm-hmm. church but for me as a Californian who did not live far from a Mormon church uh, and whose parents you know my parents are very liberal they were very pro gay marriage you know it it was a huge thing because it's a very conservative area that my mm-hmm. parents lived in at the time and so you're filling in a lot of yeah, blank spots. For and me the right Mormon now. Church didn't like announce that they were spending money on it. Well, that's the thing. None of the kids were dressed the way Mormons do when they do missions. No, no, they just no go on the right. Yeah, you don't. Only only missionaries dress like that. Maybe we'll wear like you know that on Sunday, maybe. But like on regular days, okay. we look just like you. Right. <laughs> uh, but like. There were people that stood up. I remember watching videos after I got home from my mission. I was on YouTube watching videos of people in church standing up, like Californians being like, this is wrong. And then they were getting excommunicated. They were getting asked to leave. And I was like, this, it, it is wrong. And I don't see why, like if this guy, why can't this guy just stand up and say, I think like, do we live in a church where you can't express a dissenting opinion? That's all that is. The guy says, he like, you know, he, if he still believes in the church but says, I think that this is a mistake, we're right. kicking him out for that. Yeah. And the, all these questions start going in my head. But, like, it's the – you have good feelings in it. They, you read the Book of Mormon, and they really encourage you to focus on how you feel and to pray and focus on how you feel. And you develop a lot of str- – a strong emotional reaction – to the church and that was what you say i know that it's true because look at how this strong feeling that i have you know i feel this way and that feeling is so important to you and it doesn't seem you don't you're not able to be like all right i see how this stuff is wrong but like what do i do about the book of mormon right and they 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 really reiterate over and over again they're like it's a it's like this ch- this chain of dominoes, right? They're like, if you read the Book of Mormon and you feel good, like that's the Holy Spirit. And how could you feel the Holy Spirit make you feel good if the Book of Mormon wasn't true? Right? right. So if you feel good, then it means it's true. Is that right? Right? Okay, got it. If the Book of Mormon is true, that means Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God, right? Like and then if Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God, then this is his church. And it's like, boom, 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 boom. So, and that would be like their answer to any question that you had. If you were like, hey, man, like, I don't understand why black people couldn't have the priesthood and then they could have the priesthood. Like, what's up with that? Does yeah. a, and they're like, hey, how do you feel when you read the Book of Mormon? You're like, good. I'm like, well, okay then, man. I don't know what you're, what you're worried about. These are the the questions. That was because yeah, I mean, I didn't know that these that always confounded me. <laughs> the it, priesthood thing. The the well, I mean, it, at one at one point, and tell me if I'm wrong here. Go for it. But at one point, weren't uh, anyone who wasn't white viewed as people with cursing uh, skin who were punished by God? Yeah, that's that's pretty good, Tom. So uh, yeah, there's a we believe. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, which I don't know what you, uh, how much you know about that, but there's a story about uh, Jews who left Jerusalem. Yeah, they made little boats and they came to they America. came to America to uh, and then Missouri. They, <laughs> yeah, they started this whole civilization, and it started with one family. Yeah, and you had two brothers: the good brother Nephi, the bad brother Laman. Yeah, and then they split their families up. And they formed two civilizations: the Nephites, the good one. 
Lamanites, the bad one. God curses the Lamanites for their sins with brown skin, changes their skin color. Now, at the end of the Book of Mormon, the Nephites get wicked, and the and their punishment for breaking their covenants is being destroyed by the Lamanites. So the Lamanites wipe out all the white people, and then they they live in America forever. So they become the pri the principal ancestors of Native, Native Americans, and uh, none of that's true. No, like no. <laughs> like DNA has proved that there's that, that's definitely not true. There's right. no there's no connection from Israel to uh, Native right. Americans whatsoever. It's right. not it's not true. There's no there's no archaeological evidence of these civilizations. There's stories where like twenty thousand people were killed in one spot, but like no one's ever found anything close to that. So anyway, it's are, not true. Are but, these still? T are they, but are those stories still taught in? Yeah, and now there's just all kinds yeah. of like apologetics for it, for like how they have to like do all kinds of mental gymnastics to explain why, you know, they've changed the wording in the Book of Mormon title page from saying principal ancestors to among the ancestors. The Israelites were among the ancestors of Native Americans. And yeah. yeah. And so they, they, they've kind of, you know, backed off of that hard stance. And they've really backed off of the, the skin cursing thing. But. Which is probably a smart move. Yeah, for sure. But for a long time, Mormon culture was influenced by that doctrine that people taught and believed. And sure, they've since changed it. And that's what Mormons will tell you if you bring it up now. And they'll tell you you're wrong. But like for a long time, people believed that. People right. believed that there was a skin, atta uh, the curse attached to the skin. But how did they just go whoops and 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 everyone i mean is it just what you were saying earlier oh do you get that feeling when you read the book well it's yeah different now it's it was well this that was the explanation or the whoops is what gets me is what like i i started finding lots of whoopses yeah you we're taught that like after jesus was crucified and his he had followers and stuff but like along the way the truth was lost it was corrupted uh -huh. And then, you know, everybody has all these slightly different, these slightly different variations on Christianity, you know, and there's, but there wasn't this truth anymore. And so it was with Joseph Smith that God like called another prophet again. He restored his priesthood and he's like, this is it. This is the true church. And this one has a direct line of communication with me. There's a living prophet on the earth. Um, a Latter-day Moses, a new Abraham, like someone who speaks for God. He says what God says. So that's why we follow the prophet, because he's speaking for God. Yeah. And then, so like after Joseph, there was Brigham Young, and then like right. all the way down to now, there's a guy named Russell, who's, <laughs> that's, pro, that's God's mouthpiece, is just Russ. <laughs> Russell's it, man. And so, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I know it's funny. Uh <laughs> Prophet Russell. Prophet Russell. It's, it's just a funny name. Russell. The, they, Mormon prophets are always referred to with like a middle initial. Like they give their full name. It's like Gordon right. B. Hinckley, yeah. Thomas S. Monson, Russell M. Nelson. It sounds very weighty. Sounds very nice. But if you just shorten it to Russell, it's a lot funnier. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Russell. Anywho, you, I, what you find out is that all those prophets don't always agree with each other. And one of them makes a rule one day. And then, you know, 10 years later when he's dead and there's a new prophet, 
uh, he that guy changes that rule. Yeah. And so I started learning this at BYU. You would take they force you to take religion classes, which I was excited about. Right. And then I started learning about my religion, and you learn all these inconsistencies. Like to keep using the the skin in the priesthood, there was a guy who was like, never, never, ever will African Americans be allowed to have the priesthood. And then like a couple of years later, they had the priesthood. And I was like, so was that guy speaking for God when he said that? And they'll say, no. All right, listen, God calls prophets and he does speak to them, but they are men and men are imperfect by nature. And sometimes prophets are just speaking as men. You know, sometimes they make mistakes. Okay. All right. I guess I, that makes sense. Sure. Like, you know, David was a prophet, but then he uh, fucked Bathsheba. Like, you know, so that's, yeah. you know, imperfect men. Sure. Why not? But you just find more and more of them. And then they like I was in church and they were coming out with new policies that didn't sit right. Like, so let's say prop eight. Right. Was 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 uh, the prophet was Thomas speaking as a man when he said we needed to make sure prop eight. Uh, past or was he speaking as a prophet of God because we lost so you know like I don't know there, there's all these inconsistencies it just raises more questions you know yeah. um, I thought you guys I think you guys won it first uh, we Aaron, I don't I don't remember it's just, legal now it's and legal it's legal now. in yeah, more yeah, and more yeah, states yeah. they told us like you know if we win California then we're going to stop this uh, wave of iniquity from passing over our nation, and it it really didn't of anything. I felt like it accelerated uh, gay rights. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for stuff like that, I really think you just you need one person or one state or one whatever to kind of set the example, and mm-hmm. everyone goes, "Oh, no one dies." Yeah, <laughs> like, this is this is better for taxes, you know. Exactly. Uh, uh, so these are all things that are being added to your shelf. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so but about like yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the whoops yeah. thing, they'll like they'll say things like it, it gets it's different with each instance. It will, they'll say things like uh, God was waiting for us to be ready, like that, that's a kind of a popular take on the priesthood ban. Was that like uh, you know God was waiting for us to not be racist anymore, and now that we're that we've evolved, like now He can. Uh, now he can, you know, give us the new law the same the way like Moses came down with a set of commandments uh-huh. and then he saw like no one's ready for these. So he just broke them. And so then the Ten Commandments that we have are actually God's like second draft. He's like, all right, well, if they're not ready for the higher law, I guess we'll just start with the basics, you know. Right. And so it's like, all right, well, God will reveal more information to us, you know, sure. But then you re- like I, when I got older, I learned like that's not true. Like. This is like 10 years after the civil rights movement had already happened. And yeah. uh, it was like there was the church was being threatened with legal action for racial discrimination. And that's when God said we were ready. That's when God was like, oh, you know what? Actually, they can't have the priesthood. And then that becomes very suspicious. You know, you're like, OK, all right. You know, but. Yeah. Yeah, so all these things while I'm at BYU and studying religion, uh, I'm learning more about my church and adding these things to my shelf. By the time I'm graduating BYU, there is more of a feminist movement happening in Mormonism. Uh-huh. 
Oh, in Mormonism specifically. In Mormonism specifically. Uh, there was uh, a group on campus for young Mormon feminists. Uh-huh. And there was a woman named Kate Kelly who was starting some protests at uh, like at church headquarters uh, at Temple Square about women not receiving the priesthood. Like, why can't women receive the priesthood? Which I thought was a valid question. Yeah. And if you believe the story they tell you about African-Americans in the priesthood, they say, like, the, the prophet, you know, went to God with a question. He went to God with a question, was like, hey, man, why can't they have the priesthood? And God was like, dude, I've just been waiting for you to ask. I've been dying for you to ask. They totally can. Yeah. So when this woman says, why can't women have the priesthood? I was like, these are all good points. You know what's really cool? Because we live in a, in a living church, like with a current prophet that speaks to God today. We don't have to go by the Bible like other churches do. Like right. whatever's written 2,000 years ago, that's what we have to live by. We can go get new revelation. So the prophet is just going to now ask God if women can have the priesthood. And then they're going to get the priesthood. This is going to be great. This is going to be so cool. And instead they were like, you should get the fuck out of this church, lady. And they excommunicated her and ostracized her. People hated her. And uh, they're like... I was watching that all happen and going, uh... This is the opposite of how I thought this was Yeah, yeah. right? Like, why is everyone so mad at this woman for asking a question? Right. They're like, don't don't question God. They all yelled at her. Like, and I mean, I mean like, people online, people in... Per- like, people were talking about her on campus. Mormon and, Twitter was yeah. popping off. Oh, my God. Mormon <laughs> Twitter is so weird, by the way. But uh, it was. It was popping off. And our church was founded... By a kid who asked a question. We fetishize Joseph Smith's question. Like Joseph Smith, this is the story that they tell. Say he lived in a in a land of many churches. Like everyone said that we're the true church. We're the true church. And he read a scripture from the epistle of James that said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. You know? And he went out into the to a grove of trees near his home. And sat down in prayer with a simple question in his heart. What's what's the true church? And you know what happened because of that simple question, Tom? God and Jesus Christ appeared to him. They came down. They appeared to him. They were like, hey, man, great question. None of these churches are true. Would you like to start the true one? We'll give you the priesthood. We'll make you the prophet. You'll be the man, right? That's our origin story. And I'm like, how is this lady being kicked out? For asking the question, right? Like, she just wants to know, why can't I come to this session of general conference? Like, why can't we just watch? Why can't we have the priesthood? Why can't we have callings? These are all good questions. And they were like, don't ask that. Don't. Yeah. And also at the same time, more people have the internet than have ever had the internet, right? Yeah. And uh, it's getting harder for the church to keep a lot of its, like, history under wraps more people are learning about it from not the church right and they hate that and so like my whole life growing up i was told we you hear the words anti-mormon literature don't read any anti-mormon stuff because there's a lot of people out there that hate us tom because we're we're god's true church and so satan of course is going to try to Convince people to tear us down. So we got lots of haters out there and they're all writing anti-Mormon stuff. 
And now that I've grown up, I realize like, oh, we just labeled anything we didn't like as anti-Mormon. It's like this is just a history book that just told you exactly what happened and you didn't like their telling of events. And you're like, that's an anti-Mormon author. Right. Right. Uh, So this is all kind of catching up to them. So they they start releasing essays on their official website to address some of these more uh, salacious uh, parts of their past. One of the first ones was about the priesthood ban. Yeah. And I was reading them and they were breaking me. I was reading it and I was like, this my whole life you guys have given me answer like reasons why we had this priesthood ban, but this essay makes it pretty clear that it's just because Brigham Young was racist. <laughs> like j- the priesthood ban didn't exist with Joseph Smith. Yeah. I mean at the time we had like two black members, you know, but they had the oh, priesthood. Really? The Joseph Smith. In Joseph Smith's day, I mean they were they were they were there were two black guys that were given the priesthood. But then when Brigham Young took over, he was like we're not doing that. And he, I, I didn't know that because isn't what, what Joseph Smith was alive. He he died. Eighteen uh, eighteen. I don't remember the year he died. So in, but he in was, a time where there was slavery. Yeah. He was he he was fine with having black people, and then Dude. the next guy went fuck that. Uh huh. So I this is where you, yeah, that. this is where you see like uh, God seems to adopt the personality of his prophet, right? right? Like it seems to me that the prophet has more sway over the church than God actually does. Yeah, because Joseph, our founder, like the guy, he was totally cool uh, giving uh, black guys the priesthood. He actually even gave women certain priesthood responsibilities as well. There were women that were that were giving blessings in the early days of the church, which they're not allowed to do at all. You can't like lay your hands on and give blessing unless you're a man and have the right, priesthood. But back right. then, women could do it. And like Joseph seemed to be more progressive than Brigham on a lot of things. You know, uh, like he was very progressive when it came to uh, race and also underage sex. So <laughs> like he's not a perfect dude. He also yeah. I don't want to make Joseph sound too good. He was also like fucking his 15 year old babysitter. Uh, but like Brigham, when he took over. He started teaching a lot more like racist doctrine and was like we he was the Brigham's the one who said uh, black people are cursed. Yeah. And he said it at the pulpit and like the later prophets uh, disavowed it. And they're like, oh, Brigham was joking when he said that or like, I don't know what Brigham was on that day, but that's not what God told me. Okay, You know, as it became socially unacceptable to have that. Uh, doctrine we then were just like oh we never meant that right and this essay outlines that and it's on the church website and i and what really blew my mind is that no one would talk to me about it like i realized how uncomfortable it made everyone and i don't think i would use the word cult yet but like something in me was like it's wrong that that everyone is uncomfortable like i would just want to talk to my parents who i love yeah. And I always turn to them for advice. And I'm like, Dad, I'm having a lot of doubts about this. And I would like talk to him about this essay. And they would just like want to change the subject. They were so uncomfortable with it. And I think that's what a cult does to you. It, ch- it, it makes certain things like painful. And that you just like, I'll put blinders on rather than look at it. Right. I just can't. I'm not allowed to look at this. And it's like self-imposed blinders almost. But I was watching all of my, I was trying to talk to people on campus. I'm like, the, the day that they published the essay, I thought that this was going to be news. I thought everyone would be chattering about it and no one was. 
And I was like, guys, they said, they said this, they said that, and no one cared. Like my whole life, the story that I was told about the Book of Mormon's translation was that an angel appeared to Joseph, said, hey man, I've got something to show you. It's in the ground out here. Shows him a place in the ground. Joseph digs up and he finds these golden plates. These plates that the Nephites rode on for a thousand years. They rode on gold plates and then before they died, they buried them. And now, and now this is their record of their people. And then Joseph took those plates and he translated them. He like sat down at a table with these plates. He read them and God gave him the gift of translation. He could read this ancient language and he could translate into English. And that's how they wrote the Book of Mormon. When I was a missionary, one of the first guys I taught, this cool guy named Stefano who had lived in Boston. So when he spoke English, he had like a Boston accent. He was really cool. He really liked us. And then one day he brought these papers that he printed offline. And he was like, hey. I read all this about Joseph. I was doing some Googling about Joseph, and this is what I found out. And there was, like, stuff about how he was, like, a treasure hunter and that he used rocks. He used rocks that he felt were magical to find treasure and then and that he trans he, tr- he never had plates, but, like, he translated, quote, unquote, this book, but he took his special rock called a seer stone. He put it into a hat. He put his face in the hat. And he would stare at the stone and he would see words and images on the stone as God, you know, talked to him through the rock. And he had pictures of him like his face in a hat, like, you know, artist drawing of him. And we were like, Stefano, I hate to tell you, man, but that is anti-Mormon literature. That's Those are lies. These are all lies. Those are anti-Mormon lies. And the second essay that they released was about the seer stone. And they had an actual photograph of the actual seer stone, which they actually have in Salt Lake City. It's sitting in some vault somewhere. They have the stone. And they were like, this is the stone that Joseph used to translate the Book of Mormon. He put it into a hat and he would look at it. And I was like, what? Back the fuck up. Wait a second. What about all the paintings in church buildings, in manuals of him sitting at a table with the plates? And they were like, uh, I don't really remember that. I don't know. But he had the rock, though. And I was like, I thought that was anti-Mormon lies. And it, like, shattered. I was like, whoa. And I wanted to, t- and I, like, started posting about it on Facebook. And I was like, guys, what the hell? What is this? And all these other Mormons would chime in and be like, oh, I always knew about the rock. You, they didn't teach. That's weird that you, you never had a Sunday school teacher teach you about the seer stone. You really, it's all very condescending. Like you should just should have known like, Oh, you really thought that he used the plates. Come on. No, people were trying to steal the plates from him. So they had to keep the plates hidden in the ground. And you're, and it was just like, it didn't make any sense. I was like, yeah. if the plate, because you read in the book of Mormon about how important the plates are, like people are killing each other to keep the plates safe. Like ne- Nephi in the opening chapters of the book of Mormon has to chop a guy's head off. And he's like, do I have to? And God says, yeah. You have to because that's how important these plates are. But like then and and like then Moroni, who's the last Nephite, who's being hunted by Lamanites. There's a lot of good stories for you guys. I hope this isn't too deep. He's carrying the plates around, trying to find us. He walks until he makes it to New York so that he can bury the plates there so that Joseph, the future prophet, will be able to find them. But he just needed a rock. 
Also, the essay talked about how he definitely was a treasure hunter. Like, before he found the plates, he was just, like, hunting for regular treasure, like, just pirate treasure or some shit. He and his whole family had rocks that they used to find shit. And I'm like, you guys told me my whole life that those were anti-Mormon lies. And now you're just like, psych. That's what happened. Yeah, just okay. Don't worry about it. You still feel good when you read read the Book of Mormon, though, right? You feel good when you're in the temple? I mean, how could good feelings be wrong? Like, if you feel good, that means it's right. That's the spirit. And it wasn't until November 2015, I was trying very hard to stay in the church, you know? I was trying to—I had a son at the the time. Uh, Well, I still have a son. But, I mean, then I had a son, and I was like, I I don't know how to raise him if I don't raise him Mormon. Like, how will I teach him— about life and what's wrong or right if I'm not Mormon anymore. So we got to keep going to church. And then was, was it all these was was the 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 article that the church released was that was that the last thing on the shelf or was that No, this is the last thing. Oh, there's okay. there's a bunch of stuff like other people got excommunicated that I felt like like the uh, the girl who I knew who I went to BYU with who started Young Mormon Feminists. Yeah. She like was barely allowed to graduate and then she was excommunicated after she graduated and it was just I was just like this is weird. I don't like this. But I was trying to stay in the church because it's yeah. all that I knew. My whole family, everybody, like, you know, it's my whole life. It's my whole identity. At, yeah. At this point, were you mostly, I mean, you have a family now. Uh-huh. You're, 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 um, it sounds like most of your friends were still mostly Mormon. You're in Utah. Was that, was it mostly social reasons at this point that you were staying or was there still belief there? I don't think I was ready to admit that it wasn't true. I don't think it was, it was social. I don't. I didn't end up having the same social pressures that a lot of people do. Right. Uh, like my parents, as much as it broke their heart, they didn't disown me. And there's other people who are like, you know, they're people that have to pretend to keep their jobs or to keep their family happy or their spouse yeah. happy. My spouse was like ready to leave. She was excited to not be Mormon anymore. I really, truly wanted it to be true. And that's what was keeping me in. Oh, so she was staying there because of you. You weren't staying there because of her. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. She, I like, because then the second my shelf, like, finally broke, there was no, she was just like, excellent. (laughs) And you know how I said it took me a year to start drinking and stuff? She just started. She was like, all right, time to go, you know? I've been ready. Uh And I don't know, the the shelf breaking, and it was like, end up being this tiny little, it was just like easy. It was like I thought it would be. I was so scared to let go. I was like clinging to the church. Yeah. My fingernails. Like I can't let go because it's everything I am is this. And then they came out with a policy about the kids of gay parents that was just so dumb and so unnecessary that I was like, why am I trying so hard to stay in this shitty church? Yeah. And I just, my wife and I just looked at each other and we were like, we're done. And we never went back to church after that. What was the policy? It's complicated and stupid, but kids in Mormonism get baptized when they're eight because we believe that's the age of accountability. Before eight, you're not really held accountable for anything you do wrong. You can't really sin because you don't really have a good understanding of what right and wrong is. Eight years old, you can get baptized. This policy said if one of your parents is gay, you can't get baptized until you're 18 and denounce that parent's lifestyle. And I was like, this seems strange. This seems like a policy written by lawyers 
this seems like a policy for what three kids how many gay parents are trying to get their kids baptized into mormonism really yeah and it just seemed like othering it just seemed like a way of making people feel like we already do enough to make uh, gay people feel unwelcome in church and this just seemed like another thing they also tried to sneak it it was leaked someone on the inside leaked the policy to the public because it was just Excuse me, I keep like uh, hiccuping. No, you're, you're, yeah, you're fine. Uh, they were putting it into this like man, this policy manual thing, and they weren't announce making this announcement or anything like that. Right. But someone leaked it to the press and was like, "Uh, look what we're doing over here." And so I, the whole thing just stunk to me, and I that was my last straw. I think I had a lot of straws already on the camel's back at that point, and I was like, "I'm done. And this is yeah. it." But here's a weird thing about whoops. Is that Russell just a couple weeks ago gave a talk at BYU about uh, why he reversed that policy, which he did, I don't know, last year or something. He undid that policy because people hated it so much and people left the church over it and it was this whole big thing. Right. And he's like, I read the transcript of it and it just doesn't make it's just like, you know, God said this. And now God's changed. You know, it was it was right when we did it, but now it's a. He made it seem like it was a hateful policy that like that we pled with the Lord to please change this hateful policy, and God was like okay, and I'm like well if that's it. Then God sucks, and God shouldn't be in charge of the policies anymore. And what does that say about us? If yeah. you know, like everything about it is just it's just wrong. It's just right. weird. Now, yeah, God seems to be used as a uh, as an excuse to get to do it and to get out of it. Yeah, guys. just whenever you need God is whatever He is like whatever you need Him to be at the time. Because God's you very can't convenient. Him. Yeah, or the prophet. And like uh, I've had discussions with people about how it was wrong to leave the church when the prophet made that uh, hateful policy because. Like we should just listen to him no matter what, even if he tells us to do hateful things. And uh, it's just, it's strange. Yeah. When, so, yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. I just was going to, what you asked? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, when you, when you actually did it, when you actually, I mean, you and your wife looked at each other and went, fuck this. How did you go about that? Quietly at first. Um, I didn't tell my parents that we quit until we got divorced. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, which was like you know, uh, six months later. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. Um, she was ready. She that that woman was ready to start drinking and start dating other people. She was ready for yeah. both of those things. She was like, all right, well, if we're not sealed for time and all eternity anymore, can we uh? see other people now so i had been waiting for like the right time to tell my parents uh-huh. and i just felt like i could sneak it in you know i was like i was i was at their house crying because she had just left and i was like right, oh right. it's over tabitha left me also i left the church you know actually they asked the first question they asked me was like have you guys still been going to church because you know clearly that would fix it is if we right. were just going to church and I was like, no, I don't. Uh, I quit the church. I don't believe in it anymore. And I just said, said it like that. And my parents like eyes went kind of wide and they just went kind of quiet. And then w- they didn't bring it up for years. 
Yeah. We just never talked about it again. My parents are good like that. If something's going to make them uncomfortable, we'll just ignore it. We'll pretend yeah. like it's not happening. Yeah. But, um, I mean, in that situation, that is kind of the best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other people had to face like real social consequences, you know? Um, and I, I mean, I had some, but I just don't think they were that big of a deal. Right. Like, I definitely uh, lost some work. I was acting on a, sh- uh, a TV show for BYU Television at yeah. the time. Uh, it was a dumb show, but it was a good paying gig. Yeah. And uh, I didn't get uh, invited back for season two, you know? <laughs> like, I was also probably bad at the job. But uh, is it was definitely weird, like, when I told, like, when I would tell people on set like yeah i'm not mormon anymore it's like everyone gets uncomfortable everyone feels strange about it because you're i don't know your whole we talk a lot about the people that leave in church and they always we always say that they're leaving because they want to sin because they've been seduced by the devil you know yeah and so it's like hard to get people to believe that i didn't want to leave Right. I was like, I tried to stay in Mormonism as long as I could. I wanted it to be true more than anything, and it's just not. Yeah. And that's a sad reality that I had to face, and I actually am brokenhearted over it. Like, it felt as bad as my divorce. Maybe not as bad, but, like, it's I compare it to my divorce a lot. It felt like heartbreak, and people didn't believe that. They just think that you're just a sinner, that you just, like, couldn't hack it anymore. And you probably got addicted to porn, and that's why you're not coming to church. And I was like, wrong. I I was addicted to porn the whole time I was at church. (laughs) Joke's on you. Uh, But uh, it was like, was there a void afterwards? uh, Very lonely. That's how, void is a great word to describe it. It was lonesome. I mean, also my wife left, so like I was really alone. I know, you really got hit with both things at the same time. I talked to another friend who uh like it was became my divorce friend because she had been through one and she had all this advice and she you know stayed in the church and like she got like doubled down on mormonism in her divorce and it was like that was her comfort you know like i'll go to church i'll have these people and like i believe everything happens for a reason and there's a god up there who loves me and all this stuff and i was like alone and i was like i used to pray you know i used to pray now i'm like i don't believe in god anymore and I just feel emptiness. And I'm like, I don't I don't have anyone to turn to for comfort, you know? Yeah. And it did it felt it felt really weird for a really long time. I still miss it sometimes. I miss like having the answers, like knowing that there's a purpose, that there's a reason for whatever. Reaching out and feeling the comfort. Uh-huh. Yeah. But like it's better now. But then it was definitely a void. Really lonely. It's just like a a hole that you couldn't fill. How how did you try to fill it? I don't know. Because you didn't even, I mean, I wonder, I mean, I don't know how much of it was out of grief for also losing your marriage that you didn't go out and immediately start, you know, quote, sinning. But, like, you, you waited, you waited, you, you, the, you I know. I did, and I feel like, I think that the, Like the the idea that I always had in my mind that I bet Mormons also have is that then you like you replace God with with drugs and alcohol. That's how people, you know, they get addicted to stuff. They're trying to fill that that void with unholy things, and it's just terrible and it tears you apart. And it just never happened to me. Uh, yeah. I I found drugs to be enlightening, 
I found drugs to like like just weed is like the main thing that I that I really uh, got into. I loved it, but like it helped me find me and it helped me find spirituality in myself. You know, and it was like nice, but they I never looked at any of those things as substitutes. I just I didn't try to find a substitute, and it was sad to go uh, like cold turkey to yeah. just be alone. But it's the first, this is like the first time in my life that I feel like I kind of know who I am. Right. I had this idea and then that idea was shattered. The, the, the same divorce friend uh, gave me the metaphor of a house. It's like you live in a house that somebody built for you, like a log cabin, let's say, like, you know, a wooden, yeah. you know, I see all these pieces, right? And then, but, and it's like a nice house, but you didn't make it. Somebody made it for you. Right. And then it gets like torn down. Storm, whatever, tears it down. And now you're like standing around in the rubble. And you have all these pieces now. And you have to build your own house. And it's up to you to build it. And it sucks because you're exposed to the elements. The whole time you're rebuilding your house, everything sucks. Yeah. yeah uh, every every problem in life hurts a lot because you don't have a house. But you're building your own house and there's pieces of wood in the rubble that you like. That you're like, "I like this one. I'm going to keep this one." Right. And there was stuff from Mormonism that I couldn't throw away. That I was like, "I don't think this is bad." Yeah. They taught me to live like this and I think this aspect it's is good. good. This yeah. is a true thing. I want to be this kind of person. Right. You know, like I really tried to be a Christ-like person. And while I don't believe in Christ anymore as a religious figure, the I the idea of being yeah. Christ-like is a is a worthwhile goal. Right. To be someone who truly cares about other people and that puts other people first and that serves them. I want to do that. Sure. But then there's other pieces, like other pieces of lumber that you're like, fuck this. Yeah, I've can, never liked this. You can throw away the gay dad wood. Yeah, yeah like I don't, have, I don't need <laughs> yeah, this, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, but then you have to like go other places to find the wood that you're going to use to replace that. So I still think I'm in the process of building my new house. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, I think I'll probably like one day I'll suddenly realize like, oh, like I'm living an authentic life and I have been for a while and I just didn't notice it. Right. Uh, but like right now I'm still like in that process. I don't feel as exposed. I feel a little bit more sure of myself. You'd say maybe halfway or? I think halfway. Yeah. Sure. I think I've got like good foundations and stuff. Which, which I mean, here is the one thing because I, I mean, I've met people from very, I mean, this is, I think this is a common thing. This is what I realized is this part of it is common i think for any leaving any religion any tribe any yeah. tribe you know is you have you have yeah you have a shelter and you're ripping it apart and then you, you from that you try to build who you actually are and it feels miserable and sometimes it does sometimes people fall into a different community and they have the same kind of, I hate this word, codependent nature on the new community. Some people rely on substance. Some people yeah. just completely isolate themselves from the world. And it doesn't sound like you really did. It sounds like you were flirting with isolating yourself. I mean, I think I spent a, the better part of those years just like 
by myself in a room doing lots of sad thinking. So I yeah. think in some ways I was I was isolating. I still yeah. I still went out and saw friends and stuff, but like you felt alone still. Day after day after day of just like alone and thinking cuz all this bad stuff happened all at once, you know. And there was a lot yeah. there was a lot going on. What what was what was some of the light that took you out of that cave? Hmm. Uh cuz I I fell into that that was my experience too is I I I, I was very much very much a, a alone when I kind of div- you know divorced myself of you know past past things I believed and whatnot. I very much did the same thing. I think time is a was a big thing, and like just the more I lived, the more I realized I can uh, I can live without the answers. I clinged to Mormonism for so long because I said, if I say the Book of Mormon's not true, then that means I don't know who God is. I don't know if there's an afterlife. And, like, I don't know what the purpose of life is. And how can I live day to day? The thought of living day to day not knowing what the entire purpose of my being was sounded like it would be terrible. But then I did it. And day after day, I realized, oh, like, oh, you can just kind of get by not knowing if what happens when you die. Like, uh, right. you can kind of just, like, get by, and it's not, it's not that big of a deal. You you became, I mean, this is, uh, people always take this word to such an extreme, but you became more nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I absolutely, and I thought that nihilism was I scary. Think nihilism is very, I think it's the most positive being completely nihilistic becomes negative. Being completely anything is negative. But uh-huh. nihilism is the only way I could dig myself out of my own holes, and that's yeah. There's a cheerful kind of nihilism where you're like, nothing matters, so let's let's choose to be happy. Right. Like I if, get to choose what matters. Uh huh. Yeah. I definitely found that. I also had never spent time by myself before. Oh, interesting. I lived at home. I went on a mission where then I was with somebody right. at all times, and then I came home and I got married, so I was with someone at all times, and I was maybe a little uh, codependent with her, and so I was very scared. Like when she left, I was scared to be alone, but then I forced myself to do it, and like just seeing movies by myself was a big thing, and then like I started to realize I like seeing movies by myself better. Then I like watching movies with other people. It's like way cooler to be alone. Yeah. And I remembered this Mormon stand-up comics bit that I heard one time about like dating himself. He just did this whole bit about taking himself out on a date. And I would think about that because I was like, I'm really getting to know myself. And I think that you... I think community is great, obviously. I think everyone should be raised in a family. I think that's wonderful. But I do think that there are aspects of yourself that you will never, you don't really, you won't really truly know yourself until you are separate from those communities. And like if you, like I think a healthy person like uh, understands their own boundaries and can like and participate in any community yeah. but have a strong sense of self. And that's what I'm hoping for eventually. But I realized I had no good boundaries and I didn't I my entire being was the was Mormonism like and my wife and like those two things were then suddenly gone. And I was like, I don't understand who I am or what I do anymore. What do I what am I if I don't if I don't have an eternal family that I'm going to rule a planet with someday? That's, uh, you know, like, what will I be? And like a little bit into that and other. Yeah. And then you just have to like it's hard. 
but you sit by yourself for a while and you you learn that you have value just by yourself. You're like, I I like me and my opinions and needs and wants matter and I can put them before, you know, other things. And it's it's been terrible, but uh <laughs> it's been painful and it's been sad, but like a worthwhile process. Right. If you can find a shortcut and do it, you know, quicker, easier and pain with less pain, I say go for it, but I don't I don't think I I mean this is this is this is my opinion. I don't know if this is true or not. I don't think there is one. I think that you really Once again, I'm probably wrong. I No, really, I think go on. But I really believe that you kind of have to destroy everything and from and and then build the most painful way possible in order to have a good, uh, you know, view and perspective of self and balance, all the things you're saying. Mm-hmm. I really do think that that is a painful thing, and if you look for a shortcut, it's it's not real anymore. Like it it just it just sucks. But there, like, it feels better because I'd say I'm about halfway as well. There are definitely de- different details to our stories and whatnot. Uh-huh. But I'm about halfway. I'd say I'm probably around the same point as you are. I don't think there's any other possible way for me to have learned had it been any less painful. I think if it was any less painful, I would have gone, well, I can I can live with this. Yeah. I think it has to be painful so that you can grow. Yeah. You know, and it was fucking painful. Like, I tried to kill myself a bunch of times. <laughs> you know, I'm, like, it's painful. But I don't think I would have been... I don't think I would be the same person without it t- today. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have liked myself a lot less. Not that I l- like myself a ton, but I would have liked myself l- a lot less if I hadn't gone through that pain. So I think I think it's necessary. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, personally, like, I think like you could get through life just fine without without experiencing it. Like I probably would have lived a different life, but I don't think I would have known myself. Exactly. Exactly. And like I think now, um, like, I don't know. I still kind I would be it would be maybe cool if there was a God. Maybe. I don't know. But living life without one just it kind of turns out that like I'm God. You know, right. like I, I imbue meaning into my own life right? and like, uh, I decide what's right or wrong. Whereas before the feeling that I had, like I would, you know, sense a feeling about a decision. I feel like this is God telling me this is correct. And instead now this new mindset, I have more power where I'm like, I decide what is correct. And initially that was scary. I wanted someone else to make the decision for me. I wanted God. I want someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. It is hard that you have to make all the, call all the shots, but like I'm nobody's servant. I'm just it's me. Yeah. And you know what else? I have prayed since then. Uh, it's only been a handful of times, usually when I'm high. But like I I'll say a prayer and I'll pray like exactly the same way I used to pray. Yeah. But it, I address it to myself, and I just I like I just sit quiet. Like you know, people talk about I hear people talk about meditation and stuff, yeah. and I'm like, that's what I I miss that like this the the healthy spiritual stuff that I did get from Mormonism. There was a lot of like 
quiet reflection where in prayer usually where, uh, you know, I felt like I would sort through life's problems, but I would always be like talking to this other party, like, you know, presenting my problems, the thing, whatever I was working on, I present it to this other party and then like listen into the void and like try to hear what God has to say. And now, uh, it, I, it feels a lot, it feels a lot closer when I do it because I realize I'm just talking to myself and I feel like I was only ever talking to myself before and that the answers that I did get were just like, those came from me. Yeah. I, I gave myself those answers. Right. And, uh, it all, it's like every time I've done it, I seriously I've probably only done it four times, but like, it always makes me feel happy. I feel good yeah. when I, when I have done it. And, uh, so, yeah, like, you know, you leave your religion, and then you get to start your own religion where you're the God, and it's cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, that is, that is, uh, I mean, that's, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's part of it. I think that is something that a lot of people, like, uh, kind of come to the conclusion to. Even if they do believe in a God, a lot of people tend to, I feel like, find one that they're at least more connected to in a personable way yeah and you know i think uh i think that's a fucking beautiful thing man um i i, I mean we're we're about at an hour and a half i'm yeah. sure you got other stuff i want to ask you one more question to anyone who is listening who's in the church right now who's listening to this podcast who's thinking of leaving and is torn on it what what would you what would you say to them and by the way, I know that at least a couple of those people do exist in our listenership. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I would say nothing to them, man. <laughs> I'd say. No- I love it. I would. <laughs> I think it's so personal of a journey. Yeah. And everybody has to do their own. I think, like, I knew people that were out when I was still in. And they never pressured me. They never like tried to be like, hey, man, you should really read this. Right. And I think if they had, I wouldn't have been ready. But like when I was ready, I searched out those things like the CES letter. I read it on yeah. my own. And like I never want – it was so personal to me. It's heartbreaking. And it's like I think for some people it's easier to leave because you weren't that into it. Yeah. But if yeah, you were yeah. into it like me, it's painful. And I'm like – I don't want to, I don't know what to tell you. It's going to hurt. But like you do it at your own time and your own pace. Uh, I just think that like you find what's true for you and what uh, is good for you. But I don't know if there's, if there's people, if there was someone who was like really, who knows that they want to leave, like is like wants to leave and is scared to do it. I would say it's, uh, it's not that bad. Like I, I held on for so long cause I was so scared of what would happen and not that much happened. I mean, uh, like you, it sucks, but you just kind of, you, you make grow. it through. Yeah. 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 Well, this was, this was, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks dude. for having me. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Where can people find you? Uh, listen to the Mormon and the meth head podcast. It's a great show. It yeah. chronicles a lot more of this journey. It's a, a, like I talk about, you super know, super detailed. Yeah. 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 There's funny stories about, you know, trying acid for the first time. The first time I tried acid, we recorded a podcast while on acid. That's uh, phenomenal. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Aaron Woodall 14. 
Okay. Aaron Woodall, 14. Yeah. Well, yeah, once again, thank you for doing it, man. Um, well, yeah, I'll just talk to you guys next week. Bye. <laughs> how do you, how do you feel about it? I love